Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Ravlick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Uh, those of you that have listened to this podcast series will know from time to time I touch on trivial matters. Well, trivial compared to what I'll be talking to um, my guests in this particular episode. You know, we're talking about matters of, of life and death and how people cope with the loss of a human life in, in, in its various forms. Uh, journalist and strategic communications consultant, Didi Lodberg, Lodberg has spent a lot of time putting together, uh, investigating and researching a book called Hard to Bear. And it touches on one of the most typical issues that we come across in in just general human discourse, and that is how people cope with how people cope with miscarriage or how people, and even how people cope with stillbirth. Her book, A Heart to Bear, Investigating the Science and uh, Silence of Miscarriage, is out now, and it's a pleasure to have Izzy with me to talk through some of the issues that she dealt with in the book whilst writing it. Izzy, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Now, uh, before we dive into some of the themes in the book, and I stress to those listening, it's it's three hundred and fifty pages plus, so we're not going to be able to we're not going to be able to do everything uh, in one hit. But if you had to introduce yourself to somebody who'd never met you before, and there'll be people who pick this up who've never met met or heard of you, what's your elevator pitch to somebody who who you are new to? I have written a book using all my tools that I've gained from 20 years in journalism, but I've done it through a lens of lived experience. So I haven't approached this book with a kind of my emotional hat on, if I can put that, put it like that. I've approached this book with my journalism hat on, but I've never lost sight that this is a real human issue that affects people affects all different kinds of people from all different walks of life and so you know I think that's what's special about it is that I've really approached it from a like a data and science driven position but also it kind of has the heart and soul of someone who knows how much this issue hurts um and it ticks a lot of boxes in that sense um and that's why I think it'll kind of be accessible to everyone from the person who's had a loss and needs to make sense of it or understand better what's happened and whether it might happen again, those sorts of questions, all the way through to doctors who want to kind of um, know more about this area, um, uh, specialists or even just general practitioners who, although GPs are a form of specialty, but you know what I mean, um, you know, more general um, practitioners who who want to know how to support their patients who go through it. So. But I think it's impossible for me to do anything without humour, even when it's really hard to find the humour. Um, and so I think the book is not as heavy as people might ex- might think that it needs to be. It, there are parts of it, obviously, that are sad, but overall, you know, I've kept it as light as possible because who wants to be depressed? Like <laughs> reading a book, you know, you want to you want it to be constructive, not not trauma porn. I didn't want to write trauma porn. And I, some of the publishers that were talking to me were like, oh, you know, 
can you just turn it into a memoir? And I said, no, because that's not what this is. This is not a memoir. It has snippets of my own story for context and understanding, but it's not, you know, it's not, that's not what I'm here to do. I have a therapist. I can talk to her to debrief. So, yeah. <laughs> now, every book, um, and I've, I've had the privilege and put myself through writing three over four years recently, every book is a journey. Um, every book is it goes through its own sort of process and phase. Um, where did this journey begin for you? Well, being a journalist and having so many friends who are journalists and editors and being very open about my losses as they were happening, um, a lot of people were like, can you write about this? Can you write about that? You know, and I just said no because I didn't feel comfortable writing about it until I knew that my journey was over for a variety of different reasons, but it just felt, it just, I don't know what it, I just felt like the wrong thing to do for me personally. So while I was very open about it on social media and with, you know, in, in social situations or whatever, equally, I wasn't going to write about it until I knew where my story ended, this part of my story ended. So when I felt that my story had reached its conclusion, um, I started to do some reading and, you know, trying to figure out, well, what did I want to say about this? You know, because having had seven losses, like I had a lot of things to say, but I didn't want to say things that were purely emotional venting. I wanted to really understand a whole lot of different things that I was ready to start researching. And so I started doing some reading and the more I read about it, the more I was like, oh, no, oh, this is a disaster. It's actually not a feature. It's not a series of features. It's too much. It's actually going to have to be a book. And I went to my husband and I said, oh, this is a disaster. I don't want to write a book. Like I don't have the, I, I'm very like, I'm very used to hard news. I'm used to pushing things out quickly. I'm, you know, and I was like, I don't know if I have the attention span to write a book, you know, and, and, and then I started, you know, freaking out, like, well, what if, you know, what if, it's not good enough. Like, do I take time off to write it and to think that it's going to get published? Do I get a publishing contract first? I was very lost. And my husband said, stop it, stop it now. Just sit down and start writing. Just start writing. The rest will figure it out, but you just need to start writing. So I did. So I kind of started writing and researching when I was on maternity leave. And unfortunately my, um, you know, maternity leave was basically at the start of the pandemic. So it ended up being a lot of time locked in the house, which was a good and bad thing, obviously. And, um, and that's kind of what happened. And I, and I genuinely feel like that this book doesn't exist in any form anywhere. It's just a very different, even the genre, the way that I've mixed genres and played with some of the literary aspects of the book is really quite different, um, to anything I've personally ever seen before. So, um, so that's kind of how it came about. Yeah. One thing that fascinates me about the book now that we're talking about form and not not sort of playing the game of spoilers. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I like avoiding as much as possible in, yeah. in interviews like this for obvious reasons. You want people to pick it up. It, pick it up and read the <laughs> Buy it. Thing. Buy that book. <laughs> oh, that that too. <laughs> But if you, um, when I flipped through it, um, I recognised chapter titles and songs from my 
childhood and teenage years what yeah. inspired your use of you know song titles throughout the book because they're, they're, that's an interesting touch yeah i it's a, there's to me there are a lot of easter eggs in my book um that you get from <laughs> my i guess my eccentricities um so i don't know quite how it happened i think because jack and i have a very my my house is very musical um there's always music on somewhere in the house my husband and i fell in love pretty much over music, like our love of music. I mean, my son is named after a very famous musician that I won't name because, again, it's in it's in the book. Um, so <laughs> I guess when I started to think about chapter titles, they ended up coming out as, like, song lyrics or music, you know, names of songs or names of albums, and that became a challenge. Like, when I realised that there was a pattern there, I kind of went, oh, this could be fun. And then I started, like, challenging myself to only use a song titles or I mean I can't you can't use lyrics because you need permission to quote lyrics but titles of songs is is okay so you know I started to like you know it was kind of fun to like think of my whole back catalogue of music in my brain and all the music I like and think of titles that suited each chapter so that was yeah it was it was fun again one of the the book uh, as we um as we're talking about this, I'm running my eyes and I, 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 I thought I, over the over the contents page. Yeah, and my eyes simply yeah you, you I smirk when I see uh, when I see songs that sort of relate to the early era of MTV. Yeah, um, and, and other things. So that's that's interesting touch. But you Thanks. mentioning music leads me to. Another question for which I haven't even prepared, but um, or thought about until you raised it. Um, how important not only is is the writing of, of a book like this, because book writing about things like this provided sense of closure, but how important was given your love of music and that sort of thing, how important was that to being able to cope with things as you were going through them? Um, Do you mean as I was going through them before I wrote the book or as I was working through them as part of the writing of the book? Let's take it. Let's take them both in sequence. So I think that in terms of going through my journey before I wrote the book, Mm -hmm. um, you know, music is a huge part of my life and my family's life. So certainly um, going to gigs and, and blowing off steam was sort of really important in that journey. Um, Uh And I found often when I was feeling flat, I could put music on and kind of drag myself out of it that way. But there was a lot of compartmentalizing going on to be able to keep going on the journey. So I think, you know, that's probably how I survived it, to be honest, is just putting things away and then unpacking them slowly over time with a psychologist. Um, um, in terms of during the writing of the book, um, 
it feels like a, it feels just like a blur. Like I think that my, there were days when I just couldn't write at all. There were days when I just had to research, 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 because that was the brain space that I was in. And then there were days when I would have a memory of something and my brain would suddenly click over and it's like, oh, it's time to write that vignette down. And so that was a a snippet of my personal story. So I would sit down and write a vignette out. And, um, but I think music was certainly, you know, as I was listening to music during the writing of the book, I would be singing along and then I think, oh, this song is called X. Oh, I got to write that down. That'd be really good for this chapter or that chapter. And, you know, the book um, definitely fed into all aspects of my life um, during that phase. So when I was writing it, so yeah, the music fed into it. It was, everything was symbiotic at that point. My music was feeding into the book. My book was feeding into the kind of music that I was listening to. It was all related. Yeah. And it was quite the process and it was very difficult because there were, there were days when, um, you know, when you're on a roll and you're writing and you don't want to stop, but like, I've got little children and I had to stop. And so Jack was amazing. My husband was amazing at sort of giving me the space where I needed it. Like I'd, I'd call in a panic from the library and say like, I'm halfway through this chapter. I have to keep going. And he just got, you know, it's, it's helpful when you're, partner is a writer as well and he'd say just keep going just keep going I don't think there was ever a time when he said no sorry I need you to come back he would always move heaven and earth to make sure I could continue with that when it was happening yeah Mm -hmm. um for context uh the listeners understand where this question's coming from I was born with a rare disorder and I did not meet somebody yeah, who had the same disorder as I had for 43 years. So most of my life was spent talking to people who were either doctors or parents or who didn't have the lived experience of. Right? Um, in researching the book, how much strength do you draw from the people you interviewed and spoke to uh, who've gone through the same experiences you have? Well, during my losses, I was part of a lot of support groups online. A lot of them are just, um, they're not actually run by any particular organisation. They're kind of organically on Facebook or whatever, usually set up by people who've had a loss and just want to talk to other people who've had losses. Um, And certainly I'm now kind of one of the elder states women, if you like, of, of some of those groups in that I'm now the story that when someone's really low on hope, I'll step in and go, look, this is what happened to me um, and try and and give them as much support as possible as other people did for me when I was in coming into those groups and saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go next. I, you know, um, so I think that um, being in those groups gave me so much insight into the commonalities and the different kinds of things that people are going through when they lose a pregnancy. And so going into the interviews for the book, um, the people that I interviewed were, some of them were from those support groups. I would approach them very gently and say, look, I'm writing a book. If you want to share this publicly, like I'd be really open to talking to you, but I understand if you don't want to do that. Um, And I would never do it when they posted. I was always 
like save their details and do it a few months later. So they've had time to process if there's something specific that they were processing. Otherwise, I um, it was literally just through Twitter or referrals. People would call me and say, I hear writing a book about this. Could I please tell you about my experience? You know, there was a lot of that. Um, every time I had anything published um, about the book or about the topics contained within it, um, I would have like tens and tens of disclosures, sometimes in the hundreds, depending on how fast the piece traveled or sorry, how far the piece traveled, I should say. Um, and so that was also, you know, and so I had training, I undertook training around, um, through Karen Percy, who was involved with the, who's now the head of the, uh, MEAA and was the, um, involved with the DART Centre and she gave me some training around trauma-informed reporting. So pretty much how to interview someone without adding to their trauma in any way, but also not taking on trauma in yourself. Um, So I really, I hope that, you know, I always checked in with people after, are you okay? Do you need anything? Here are some resources, you know, all of that kind of thing. Um, But the thing that stays with me is just how generous all of those people were in sharing desperate to see the system change because the system is just, if you read the book, you know, you'll see how messed up the system is for a variety of different reasons. And so everyone was quite desperate to like contribute to making it better. Um, And so people were very eager to talk to me and sometimes too much. Sometimes I had to say, it's too soon for you to be talking to me. You need to go away and you need to process what's happened and then come back in a month and I will happily talk to you. But I can sense that you're just not ready. You're not there. And I don't want to make this worse. Um, The other thing I would say in the context of your question around your own lived experience is that there's something that's sort of like really important about being around people who've experienced it because they know they kind of know what to say and they know what you're going through and they know I mean not everyone reacts the same way I'm not trying to put us all in the same basket or anything like that because in the book I I very specifically say you can never judge someone for how they react some people are relieved some people are traumatized it's just completely personal but um you you certainly in the, especially in the support groups where people are experiencing trauma and looking for sort of shared experience. Um, there's so much that people are like, oh my gosh, I know exactly how you feel. This is what happened to me. And you think, oh, I don't need to watch what I say. I'm not going to hurt the feelings. Like they know what I'm going through. I know what they're going through and it is incredibly powerful. Um, and especially when, you know, there are the, as I said, elder states women of the group who who can kind of, um, or elder states people, as the case may be, um, who can um, who finish their journeys, who can kind of offer some hindsight, and I think that's really important as well. So I don't know if that answered the question. I feel like that was a very yeah. long rambling thing, but there there were there are so many different aspects to the people that I interviewed, and then the downside is that you know I feel like this book carries with it a lot of weight because when I think about the book and when I visualize it, I picture all the people standing behind me who gave their time and their disclosures and their heartbreak and their professional concerns and like all these things. And I, I feel a very a big weight of responsibility to now change the system, but you know, I'm pretty stubborn. I'll get there. 
There's a couple of things. Um, uh, you've been generous with your time. There's a couple of uh, questions to close. Mm -hmm. In your research, what are the things uh, that caused you to be concerned or angry about the system? Um, the system is not functioning. So let's, I mean, when I say the system, it's a very, very broad word because I'm also talking about society as a whole, right? Because we're not um, being as supportive as we could. Um, the the key things that kind of really concern me are that where there are systems in place to provide care, they're not working the way that they should. So for instance, early pregnancy assessment centres or services where people are supposed to be able to go and get support in the early stages of their pregnancy if they're bleeding or something like that. A lot of those are just in name only. They're not actually being funded. They're not actually being, um, you know, they're not, they don't exist the way that they should. Um, the second thing I guess is that, um, you know, in terms of management, everyone is supposed to be offered the three different methods of miscarriage management and then the patient is makes the decision and that just rarely happens, especially not in the public system where the majority of the people are. Um, they're told, you know, yes, technically you could have this procedure done to end the, you know, end the pregnancy because you're having a miscarriage. But actually, in reality, if you want to do that, you have to wait a month because uh, we can't get you in or we don't, it's too expensive or I have a, you know, uh, conscientious objection or like there are all sorts of different reasons um, that that can happen. Um, that's just one example of how that, that three option system doesn't, doesn't work. Um, we have no idea how many miscarriages are actually happening in Australia. Um, the data is like, it's just estimates um, and I and I kind of show in the in the book that it could be 110,000 families a year that are affected and it could be 150,000 families a year that are affected and we really don't know and that's a big gap. Um, there's a massive international push at the moment to start tracking miscarriage rates so that we actually know if it's going up, down, sideways. Pretty much everyone I spoke to believes it's going up. Um, so and then I guess there's also the cultural aspect of you know, the fact that we're not talking about it, we're not acknowledging it, we're not good at dealing with it. And there are a lot of issues that come into play when you're talking about that that vacuum. But unlike other uh, things that I've read, um, I didn't just say acknowledge the vacuum and then move forward. I said, there is a vacuum. Let's actually figure out where this vacuum comes from. And it comes very clearly from a historical precedent that is tied up in abortion and the church and a lack of knowledge and a whole lot of other really interesting historical facts that come into play that have evolved. Um, and now it's kind of exacerbated by a general lack of ability to deal with grief in society, to actually just confront grief and say, I'm really sorry that this has happened to you. And a general discomfort with women's anatomy, menstruation, vaginal bleeding, you know, all of these things kind of create this nexus of like total, I'm not going to say disgust, but like just real discomfort um, where people just don't want to talk about it. And, you know, um, that's going to change. That's going to change. I'm going to drag it kicking and screaming until it changes.
what in your research and the work you've done for the book gives you hope? I think the thing that gives me hope is the level of generosity and energy that I've come across to to change things, to, for things to be different, and the acknowledgement all around that it's not, it can't stay the way that it is. Um, so that's everyone from medical practitioners all the way through to the people who experience loss, you know, through to nurses, through to um, allied health practitioners, like everyone really wants to see it change. So, and I think you can see that by the number of people, uh, not celebrities, but, you know, um, my peers who really, really wanted to to talk to me about it. And I, and I think that that's what that is. That is because there is an appetite and an energy for change. And I also think that there is a general movement at the moment to end medical misogyny and to end um, the second tier place that people with uteruses seem to occupy in the care hierarchy to people with penises. You know, um, I think that time is 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 up. I've been talking to uh, author, journalist and strategic comms consultant Isabel Oderberg about her book, Heart to Bear Investigating the Science and Silence of Miscarriage. Izzy, um, where do people go to learn more about the book? You can go to hardtobear.com. Um, you can um, check out my Twitter. I've always got information up there about events that are coming up. I'm at Yodaberg on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn. And, of course, you can head to any good book website, including Booktopia, um, to order the book. Um, and and, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> and then also the uh, the book publisher is Ultimo Books, and uh, it, you're able to check more out about the book on the publisher's website as well. Izzy, thank you so much for being generous with your time today. Thanks for having me, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing all your feedback on the entire 350-something pages when you've read them. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.